Today is Mother's Day, and we realize that we bring a variety of different emotions to this day. Uh, some of you are celebrating Mother's Day. You're experiencing great joy right now. You're experiencing fond memories. Others of you are probably experiencing grief or loss or sadness for a variety of different reasons. And we're aware that this season of COVID-19 has made motherhood especially exhausting or even frustrating for some of you. But if you are a mom, uh, we want to honor you today. We honor you for your selflessness. We honor you for your servanthood. There may be times when you, when you wonder, sometimes to yourself, sometimes out loud, am I a good mom? Am I having any impact in the lives of my kids? Well, I can assure you that over time, your sacrifices and your selflessness will bear fruit. Uh, as you know, my mom has been one of my spiritual heroes uh, as long as I've known Christ. And uh, I have no doubt whatsoever that many of the good things that God has done in my life can be attributed to the fact that my mother has prayed for me every day of my life. And I can remember things that my mom told me 40, 45, yay, 50 years ago. And so I'm blessed because of my mom. My kids are blessed because of their mom, my wife. Uh, as I've seen Brenda, she has sacrificed for our kids. She has put her life on hold for many, many times. Uh, and she's invested deeply in our kids. It looks different at different stages of their lives. But I assure you that now that our kids are in their mid and mid to late 20s, um, my wife has, has had a profound impact in each of their lives in different ways. And so if you are a mom, be encouraged as we pray for you today. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, on this Mother's Day, we bring you many different thoughts, memories, and emotions Many of us bring deep gratitude and joy for our mothers, mothers who have loved us, who have sacrificed for us, who have cared for us, rejoiced with us, wept with us, they've walked with us, they've taught us how to honor you in this life. We praise you for such love shown to us through our moms, and we pray for all of those who are moms today, that you would give them strength when they are weak wisdom where they are unsure, perseverance through the many demands placed upon them, give them confidence in your care for them and for their families. On this Mother's Day, some of us bring you sadness and pain. Some of us are saddened because our relationship with our mom is not easy or was not easy or never existed at all. Some of us are saddened because our children are struggling emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and we feel helpless and sometimes hopeless. Father, please meet us in our pain. Heal our hearts where they are wounded. Soften our hearts where they are hardened. And enable us to forgive and to love even those who have hurt us. On this Mother's Day, others are saddened who long to be moms, who long to have children, and yet are not able to do so. Father of mercies, 
Give comfort in the midst of sadness. Give hope despite unfulfilled longings. Give comfort and even joy in the knowledge that your love is unshakable and that you always have our best in mind, even during the tough times. We pray these things to you as the shepherd of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are returning to our sermon series in the book of James. We've taken an eight-week break. But today's passage is James 3, verses 13 through 18, in which James asks a very simple question. He asks the question, who among you is wise and understanding? And so I ask us the same question here this morning. Who among us are wise and understanding? And that's a simple question, but it's an, a very important question for many reasons. Let me mention three. Uh, number one, it's an important question because I dare say that every single one of us wants to be considered as wise. Uh, every single one of us wants to be able to uh, demonstrate wisdom and impart wisdom to others. None of us wants to be known as an unwise or foolish person. Uh, one of the things that the book of James does is that it addresses our self-deception. And one of the things that we want to avoid self-deception in is this topic about wisdom. None of us wants to think we're wise when we're really not. And so we need to be very clear about how we answer the question, who among us is wise? We need to be very clear about what wisdom actually is. Second, this topic is important because there are times when each one of us will need to seek out wisdom. And we're in a world of trouble if we ask a foolish person to give us counsel. We need to know who among us are wise and understanding so that we can seek out their counsel with confidence. And then third, as today's passage will make clear, when wisdom is absent in the church or in a family or in a workplace, there will be all sorts of relational chaos. Genuine wisdom is essential for healthy relationships. And so for these and other reasons, it's vital that we understand who among us is wise and understanding. And that's what today's passage addresses. And I hope we leave this time with a renewed passion to seek and find wisdom and understanding. The structure of our passage is very simple. Again, it's James 3, 13 through 18. James first tells us how you can identify wisdom. Then he talks about false wisdom. He'll call it earthly wisdom. And then he'll explain what true wisdom is, wisdom from above. But we begin in verse 13. James tells us that wisdom is demonstrated by our behavior. Verse 13 here, James begins by asking and then quickly answering a simple question. Who among you is wise and understanding? The answer, let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. In the Western world, we tend to equate wisdom with knowledge. We tend to think that somebody has a vast knowledge about some topic and can talk about it, that that person is wise. But biblically, wisdom has more to do with skillful living than with knowledge. True wisdom is based on knowledge, but knowledge alone is not enough. Uh, as it's been said, it's possible to make all A's and still flunk out of life. And so wisdom involves 
skillful living, having knowledge that you can apply skillfully in your life. Therefore, it's not surprising how James answers the question. How do you spot wisdom? Well, look who shows it. Look at the person who shows it by good behavior, deeds done in gentleness of wisdom. Wisdom is demonstrated by good or praiseworthy, gentle behavior. And so what this means, among other things, is that whether you're young or old, whether you have a lot of formal education or almost none at all, wisdom is demonstrated by your behavior. And that's consistent with the way the Old Testament talks about wisdom, especially the wisdom literature of Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, and it culminates in skillful living. And so if you are wise, you fear the Lord. I mean, the last thing you want is to be on God's bad side. And if you are wise, you live your life skillfully. By the power of the Spirit, you live in ways that are aligned with God's will and God's purposes. In chapter 2 of James, he said that genuine faith is demonstrated by good works. Here he says in a similar way that wisdom is demonstrated by good behavior. And it's no coincidence that the first 13 verses of, uh, or the first 12 verses of James 3 talk about the power of the tongue. One of, the, one of the, 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 the most telltale ways that you can find wisdom is by listening to a person talk. Those verses uh, uh, emphasize strongly the destructive power of the tongue. So if you want to identify who is wise, who has understanding, notice those that bless people with their words instead of cursing them with their words. The book of Proverbs is known for explaining, articulating. This is what wisdom looks like. Read through Proverbs and notice what it says about the tongue. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Notice when somebody says something in a way so that it can be received. That's a wise person. The tongue of the fool, on the other hand, spouts folly. And so James says, notice behavior, what people say, what they do. He also speaks of the gentleness of wisdom. Uh, Gentleness is listed as one aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. And we'll see in the rest of this passage, James will contrast the gentleness of true wisdom with the harshness of earthly, worldly wisdom. As we'll see, wisdom brings peace. It brings flourishing to other people. Foolishness brings the opposite. And so wisdom is demonstrated by our behavior. We come to verses 14 through 18, and James describes false wisdom and true wisdom. And James was a lot like his half-brother, Jesus. He believed that a tree is known by its fruit. And so James is not going to mention IQ. He's not going to mention education when he describes true and false wisdom. The thing he's going to point to is the fruit of a person's life. And this is one of the sobering realities. We just have to, we have to accept it and we have to, to embrace it, is that uh, our behavior, and to a lesser extent, the effect of our behavior on others, it's an accurate reflection of whether or not we are wise and understanding. And so in verses 14 through 16, we have this this earthly wisdom. We see how it's demonstrated. 
And not surprisingly, James describes a type of behavior that's the opposite of good. It's not good. It's not praiseworthy. It's actually bad. And it's not gentle. He says it's going to be, he's going to say it's arrogant. And he speaks directly to his readers and to us when he says this in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, that's where it dwells, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. And so if you recognize uh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, uh, then you lack genuine wisdom. If you have jealousy, you can't take pleasure in someone else's good fortune. When you see someone else's good fortune, instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, you are envious. And by calling it bitter jealousy, it implies a more intense self-centeredness. And so in the workplace, bitter, bitter jealousy might show up uh, when you, when you uh, are envious of another person's promotion or another person's success. In the church, it could be centered on another person's spiritual maturity or spiritual influence or spiritual position. Uh, the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son is a classic example of bitter jealousy. He also mentions selfish ambition, and that's a type of competitiveness in which you want to get ahead of others at all costs. And this is the polar opposite of humility, which looks out for the interests of others, uh, bitter jealousy or, or selfish ambition. Uh, you just want what you want when you want it. And it's possible that James still has in mind those he mentioned in 3.1, those who want to become teachers out of a desire to feel important and influential instead of out of a humble desire to serve Christ. And so if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, James says, do not be arrogant, it's arrogant, and so lie against the truth. And the truth is probably a reference to the gospel. And the gospel is this glorious announcement that Jesus Christ uh, who had humility from eternity past. He laid aside his heavenly prerogatives. He emptied himself by becoming one of us. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. On the third day, he was raised bodily from the dead, and he was ultimately exalted and enthroned at the right hand of God. And so the gospel declares that those who believe in him experience a total forgiveness of sin. You become a son or daughter of the most high God. And now your passion is to live for him because he died for you, you live for him. And I hope you never get tired of me saying this. I never get tired of saying it to you, but we are to be people who embody the gospel. We are to treat one another. We're to treat everyone the way God in Christ has treated us. And so uh, bitter jealousy, selfish ambi ambition, can there be anything more incompatible with the gospel? It's so incompatible that James says that if we have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in our hearts, number one, we're arrogant. Instead of humbling ourselves the way Christ did, we're exalting ourselves, looking down on others instead of going low for other people. And therefore, secondly, James says we are lying against 
the truth of the Gospels. Our lives, what we say and what we do, it's preaching a different gospel than the one we say that we believe. And so in verse 15, James draws an obvious conclusion. He says, this wisdom, this, this, this wisdom he's been talking about, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. He says, it's not that from above. In other words, it's not from God. All good gifts, every perfect thing comes down from above, from God, from the Father of lights. He says, actually, it's not from God. This kind of wisdom, it's earthly as opposed to heavenly. It's natural as opposed to supernatural. It's demonic as opposed to godly. And I mentioned that it's demonic. He's probably saying it's, it's the kind of, of, of wisdom that you would find among the demons, Uh, Earlier in in chapter 2, James said that demons have a kind of faith. They believe that God is one, but they don't have genuine faith. Here he's implying that uh, demons have a kind of wisdom, but it's not genuine wisdom. It's not wisdom from God himself. And so what would you say if I asked you, do you have selfish ambition? Do you have bitter jealousy? Are you arrogant? Does your life preach a false gospel? I think most of us would say, well, of course not. Why would you even ask such a horrendous question like that? Well, I ask that question because the the human heart has this incredible capacity to be deceived. We, we, We often judge other people harshly, but we ignore things that others can see in our lives a mile away. And so I have to believe that James is flagging a real issue in these verses. It's not some hypothetical that's completely irrelevant to us. And so how do we even know if we have selfish ambition and and bitter jealousy? How do we know if we're really arrogant and lie against the truth? Well, James helps us out in verse 16. He gives us a very tangible way we can, can identify something intangible like jealousy and ambition and arrogance. He says this, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. So if you spot disorder and every evil thing, you can usually trace it back to something bad in in the human heart. And so where these things exist, whether in the church or the workplace or an organization or in your family, there you will find disorder. It could be translated Uh, instability or chaos. This is the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 14.33 where he said God is not a God of disorder. He's not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. And we're going to see in the next verse when he talks about genuine wisdom, godly wisdom, that is characterized by peace, peacemakers who promote peace. But instead of unity and peace, Jealousy and selfish ambition produce disorder. And James says as well, you will also find every evil or worthless thing. The sins of jealousy and selfish ambition breed other sins. And that person as well as others affected. And I have in mind sins like slander, division, uh, strife, and anger. And so here's the point. The point is, if you want to know, and not everybody really wants to know, but if you want to know 
whether jealousy, selfish ambition, arrogance reside in your heart, evaluate the core relationships in your life and see if you spot there disorder and evil. Evaluate your relationships in your immediate family, your extended family, your relationships in the church, in your neighborhood, in the workplace. And uh, not all conflict is the result of our own arrogance, but many times, many times it is. Many times when you notice, notice chaos and evil in organizations and relationships, you can trace it back to bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. And again, remember the context here. Remember why James is flagging this for us. Because we need to understand who among us is wise and understanding. We need to be able to identify them for our own benefit and for the cause of Christ. If you want to be wise, if you want to help others live wisely, if you want peace in relationships, you have to face this directly. And when you see arrogance, jealousy, selfish ambition, turn from it. This is why Jesus died. He died for such sins. And so repentance is a gift. We can turn from it and we can cultivate the humility of Christ. G.K. Chesterton told a parable about a young boy who was given a choice. So if there, I know there's some young boys out there. If, you, if there's a young boy in your room, uh, wake him up or poke him in the ribs and say, pay attention. You're going to want to hear this, this story. But there was this young boy, and he was given a choice. He could either be gigantic or he could be minuscule. That means really small. And the boy made the choice that I would have made when I was a kid. He chose to be gigantic. I mean, really gigantic. And uh, here's a retelling of this parable. Uh, it's, it's rephrased by Mark Buchanan. So this is the boy who was all of a sudden gigantic. His head brushed the clouds. He waded the Atlantic like it was a pond. He scooped up gray whales into his hand and swished them like tadpoles in the bowl of his palm. He strode in a few bounds from one edge of the continent to the other. He kicked over a range of mountains like an anthill just because he could and he didn't feel like stepping over it. He plucked a California redwood and whittled its tip for a toothpick. When he got tired, he stretched out across Nebraska and Ohio. He flopped one arm into the Dakotas and the other arm into Canada, and he slept in the grass. It was magnificent. It was spellbinding. It was exhilarating for about a day. And then it was boring. And the gigantic boy in his boredom, he daydreamed about having, having made the other choice to be minuscule. His backyard would have become an Amazonian rainforest. His gerbil would, <laughs> his gerbil would hulk larger than a woolly mammoth, and he could ride the back of a butterfly or go spelunking 
That means like climbing. Down wormholes, a tub of ice cream would be a winter playground of magic proportions. Life would have been so much more interesting had he chosen smallness. And so that's why we turn away from arrogance. Instead of our grandiosity, instead of seeing ourselves as big and looking down on other people, when we cultivate the humility of Christ, our lives become so much more fascinating, so much more interesting, so much more fruitful. Embodying the gospel is not easy, but it's satisfying. It's fascinating. It's the way of humility. It's the way of wisdom. Well, verses 17 and 18 reinforce this reality. James says that those with genuine wisdom experience peace and promote peace instead of chaos. Wisdom from above demonstrated, verses 17 and 18. And here he's answering his original question more fully. Who among you is wise and understanding? Here it is. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And so the wisdom that God gives, the wisdom from above, it's first and foremost pure, meaning it's uncontaminated, it's uncompromised by evil. And so this suggests that we deceive ourselves if we ever think that God has led us in a way that compromises his standards, his holy character. The wisdom he gives us, it's pure. And then he goes on to mention qualities that are the opposite of so-called wisdom uh, he described earlier. And, and we won't take the time to define each of these terms. But as I read them slowly, see, see, uh, uh, notice uh, the contrast with earthly, natural, demonic wisdom that flows from bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and arrogance. So on the one hand, instead of producing chaos and evil, the wisdom that's from above, it's first pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's reasonable. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering without hypocrisy. And you read these virtues and they remind you of something, right? They remind me of the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And we come to verse 18, and this should give us a vision for the fruit that our lives can produce if we have wisdom from above. We experience peace and we promote peace. James writes, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so that's a lot of words there, but if we're wise, if we're understanding we will be peacemakers, not troublemakers. And being a peacemaker doesn't just mean that you're kind of easygoing and you get along with other people. The word peace we're talking about here, it has this long, rich theological background from the Old Testament. It's shalom. It's wholeness. It's wellness in a comprehensive sense. And so if you are a peacemaker, if you, are, if you make peace, you help other people experience wholeness personally and wholeness in relationships. Your words and your actions are so substantive. They are so winsome. They are so insightful in a spiritual sense that you influence others to get right with God and with other people. 
James has this image. It's like a farmer who sows seeds, throws seeds into the ground. You sow seeds of peace, of wholeness, of shalom, wherever you go. And the crop that you harvest is righteousness. It's right living. It's the way God designed us to live. The ESV reads this way, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so connect the dots with me, okay? Wise people are peacemakers. And peacemakers do and say things that promote righteousness. Another way to say it is that wise people make disciples. Wise people follow Christ and they help other people follow Christ. And so from the vantage point of eternity, that's what really matters. That's why we have to be wise. All of us who who name the name of Christ need to be those among us who are wise and understanding. And by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is an option. It is a viable option because of God's grace. Mr. Holland's opus is a story about a high school music teacher. Uh, Mr. Holland did not want to be a high school music teacher. He wanted to be a world-famous composer. But his plan at age 30 uh, was to just become a, a high school music teacher to pay the bills, but on the side he would write this opus. And eventually he would move out of teaching, and he fully expected that his fame and his lasting legacy would be this this masterpiece that he produced. But things didn't turn out as Mr. Holland planned due to a variety of factors. He found himself trapped in this position as a high school music teacher. But he invested deeply in his students and he called them up to a level of musical excellence that nobody really thought possible. But when he was 60 years old, 30 years into his career, it became obvious he was never gonna finish this opus, this masterpiece, much less uh, have the the satisfaction of seeing it performed. And to add insult to to injury, uh, he was forced into early retirement. And on the last day at his high school, his wife and his grown son came to his, his office and helped him pack up. And as they were carrying the boxes down the hall to the parking lot, They heard music. They heard music in the auditorium. And they came into the auditorium and they found that it was packed. It was packed with people. And on the stage, it turns out, there were former students who formed an orchestra. They had been practicing this opus, this masterpiece that he had prepared for 30 years. Before he was called up to lead the orchestra, it was pointed out to him Mr. Holland, your opus, your masterpiece is not your music. It's your students. It's these young men and women that you have invested in so deeply all these years. And I would say the same thing to everyone listening to my voice. Very few of us, for very few of us, our legacy Our masterpiece will be the the, the magnificent things we've accomplished in our careers. Not many of us will make uh, history-changing discoveries and inventions. What will be lasting will be the people we invest in, the the day-to-day wisdom that we impart. Uh, 
And so if we're going to have a legacy, we have to be people of wisdom because people of wisdom are peacemakers and peacemakers promote peace. People of wisdom are disciples of Christ who make disciples of Christ. And so my my urging to you is to seek wisdom with all your heart. Uh, The Lady Wisdom in Proverbs says, if you cry out for wisdom, if you seek it with all your heart, you will find. James 1 says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. God will give generously and without reproach. Heavenly Father, we pray for ourselves. God, we confess that so many times we are self-deceived. So many times we sow seeds of discord. And it comes from our jealousy. It comes from our arrogance. It comes from bitterness in our hearts. Uh, We are deceived. God, open our eyes. Uh, May we turn from that. May we be people who seek wisdom with all our heart. We pray, God, that you would give us a a will to seek wisdom. Uh, Give us wisdom in that. We pray, God, that as we seek wisdom, we would find it. God, may there be many, many among us who are wise who follow you in wisdom, who show others how to follow you in wisdom. God, it's, it's, it's critical for our lives and for your mission in this world. And so this is what we want. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.